Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault. This time we're bringing you part two of our exploration of the Uncanny Valley. This episode was originally published April 6th, 2017. Uh, Should we jump right in, Robert? Let's do it. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be the second part of a two-part series we're doing on the Uncanny Valley. Last time, we ventured into the Uncanny Valley. So if you haven't heard that episode, you should go back and listen to that first. We lay a lot of the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. But we explored the origination of the concept of the Uncanny Valley, what it means to, to be in the Uncanny Valley, and some research on whether this valley actually exists or not. Today, I think we want to start off by looking at if if it does exist, what might be some explanations for it? Indeed, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive into it a bit more and move, as the title uh, uh, suggests, beyond uh, the uncanny valley. But before we do that, I, I do want to talk about RoboCop. Of course, <laughs> you want to talk about RoboCop because we talk about RoboCop pretty much every day. Yeah, it's 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 an important film. Important films, I'll say at least uh, at least the first two, arguably the third one too. Throw in the TV series if you like. But um, wait, there was a TV series. Oh yeah, RoboCop yeah. TV series. It was one of those that would I think it would come on uh, Sci-Fi or it came on various cable channels. Uh-huh. I, I I only have a vague awareness of it. Uh, because it seemed to be a, a, a far lower key RoboCop type show. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, in many of the studies that we talked about in the last episode, they were looking at largely three categories uh, of of robots and humans and, and androids. So you had pure robots, things that are just undeniably machines, and we're mostly okay with. Then you have humans or 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 perfect human replications. Okay? okay, so you look at it and it either is a human or it's such a good representation of a human, ideally that you would not think that it was a robot. Right. The third category here is where you're going to get into the danger zone. Right. The human-like robots, where you you look at it and you say, "I see what you were going for there, but it's creeping me out." Yeah. So. I think it's interesting to line this up with the holy trinity of RoboCops. <laughs> okay. So this will mostly make sense if you've seen the RoboCop films, but I, I feel like most people know what we're talking about here. First of all, you had the, the proto-RoboCop, Ed 209. Oh, this is maybe the greatest scene in the first film. Is mm-hmm. Before we get a humanoid RoboCop, they just have this big drone object that is supposed to enforce the law, and it ends up shooting somebody in the boardroom. Yeah, it's a walking law enforcement tank with a robot, a commanding robot voice. Yes. So the, you look at it, and there's no denying, you, you, this is not a friendly device, but... It's not really humanoid at all. Not really at all. It it just walks on big, big legs that can't even navigate human stairs. Yeah. Uh, But I would say I have great affinity for Ed 209. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, without having to worry about it actually shooting me, uh, it's kind of cute in a way. Okay. Now, then we have RoboCop itself, himself, the classic RoboCop, the title character. Peter Weller. Yeah. And uh, he is... A cyborg or perhaps an android, depending on how you want to view the descriptions. So he's a, he has a relatable living human face, uh, which is affixed to to honor him in some uh, some explanations <laughs> or perhaps to make him more comfortable, not only as a police killing machine, but also a community law enforcement officer. So. RoboCop, you know, moves around with very robotic movements, yeah. speaks in a very robotic voice, yeah. but his face is a living human face. Yeah. So in a way like that, that seems like it might it just sort of, you know, to read perhaps more into the original film than was intended. Perhaps this was a way to to get beyond the uncanny valley. We can't replicate the human face. We'll just get an actual human face from a dead cop and just plaster it up there. Oh, but I'd say RoboCop with his mask on really does kind of get into the uncanny valley. And and Weller does some good work forcing us in there. Like, yeah. I think they're, they're sort of going for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us to the next iteration, RoboCop 2. Yeah. Which is not just the name of the second RoboCop movie, but also the the model of RoboCop that replaced the original RoboCop. 
they think, hey, what would happen if we put Tom Noonan in there? That's right. So they they have another, essentially a walking tank, kind yeah. of like Ed 209, except it's powered by the brain of a psychotic drug lord named Kane, played by Tom Noonan. Uh-huh. Uh, he's fabulous in it. Uh uh, but here's the here's the thing. It's walking around. It's killing everything with a Gatling gun. But then it can pop a flat screen TV out of it, out of the, the front of its body. Yeah. And on that screen is a twisted, uncanny lawnmower man esque CGI face of Tom Noonan. Yeah. So so that one really leans into the uh, uncanny valley. Well, yeah. And this this does point out another thing, which is that there have been plenty of intentional realizations of the uncanny valley mm-hmm. in film when when people are trying to create an unsettling unpleasant humanoid for story purposes yeah. if it's supposed to be a villain if it's supposed to make people uncomfortable because that's its role in the plot so one thing i kind of wish we'd done I, I hadn't even thought about this is to if we could talk to somebody who has intentionally made things in the uncanny valley what did they do on purpose to get it there hmm. if your your job is to make a humanoid robot or an animated humanoid figure that intentionally pushes all the bad buttons <laughs> and climbs as far down into the valley as it can, what do you do? Hmm. That would that would provide some really interesting insight into what it actually takes to get there. Well, you know, to come back to video games, something that comes up a lot is you, you see these videos going viral where it's like just a cut scene or a, a, a clip from the video game with a humanoid character in a more or less human situation, except something screwed up and the face is missing. So it's just two floating eyeballs and maybe uh-huh. a floating set of digital teeth. <laughs> so the context is, is key there. Like this thing's acting as if it had a face and it's in an environment where where I'm supposed to just roll with it. But clearly something's wrong. Yes. Okay, well, as we said in the last episode, we talked about the origin of the idea. We talked about some evidence for and against the fact that the Uncanny Valley actually exists to to the uh, point that it actually does exist to some extent. Maybe not in the naive original sense, everybody would say, where it's just related to the amount of realistic humanness in a figure, but has other dimensions as well. What causes our uncanny valley reaction obviously people do have this reaction they see a humanoid robot or a humanoid animated character the scorpion king the final fantasy the spirits within characters whatever it is and we get so what causes it why do our brains react that way is it biological is it pure instinct is it a learned psychological reaction is it part of our culture is it something coming from cognitive dissonance of some sort Now, to go back to the origins of the idea with uh, Masahiro Mori in 1970 in his original paper on the Uncanny Valley, Mori speculates that the Uncanny Valley might be a side effect of the self-preservation instinct. In other words, it's a biological adaptation that helps us avoid disease and death. Uh, And he starts with the observation that when a normal, healthy person becomes sick and eventually dies... They basically tend to slide down from the second peak of the uncanny valley, what we were calling the realism peak mm-hmm. or the, uh, the the reality peak, and slide down into the uncanny valley. It's like they become more like these upsetting puppets and robots. You know, they might uh, suffer some kind of change in their uh, in their the the appearance of their skin, of their eyes, of their facial expressions. Things begin to look off about them. And he writes, "quote." The sense of eeriness is probably a form of instinct that protects us from proximal rather than distal sources of danger. Proximal sources of danger include corpses, members of different species, and other entities we can closely approach. Distal sources of danger include windstorms and floods. You know, this is interesting, the the mention of other species. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many... Films and documentaries I've seen of, of, say, lions running around in their yeah. natural habitat, and it's it's almost never creepy. No, no, not at all. And yet, and then mostly, a lot of times when I'm in a zoo, it's not creepy. But there have been times I take my son to the zoo a lot here in Atlanta, and uh, there are times when we go down to the the lion enclosure, and we're the only people there at the zoo because we've arrived super early, uh-huh. and we just we're hanging out with a lion on the other side of the glass. You know, we're perfectly safe, but a Deep uneasiness comes over me, uh-huh. washes over me, and uh, 
and and I'm just confronted by the the the, the danger of the situation. Like there's a a danger that uh, that goes beyond uh, any reason because I am in close proximity to a dangerous member of of another species, a carnivorous uh, uh, a predatory animal that would, in under normal conditions, potentially kill me. Now there is, I would bet a very different kind of sensation going on inside you uh, when you're in proximity to a lion than when you see a creepy looking humanoid robot or a creepy looking uh, animation, human animation, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's probably exciting the difference between the when when we talked about the creepiness episode, the creep, uh-huh. the difference between the sort of like uncomfortable threat ambiguity right. versus Sensing that there truly is a threat of some kind, right? And you know, we we spoke to illness uh, here. Yeah, you know? like certainly, someone put, we talked about like what happens when a coworker walks up to you, and uh, they're they're sniveling or more a little bit pale, uh, and, and they say, "Let's French." <laughs> well, well, hopefully not. But uh, but yeah, there's a, there's an at least an initial sense of oh, what's wrong with this person? Um, I wonder if what they have is contagious. Should they even be at work? I hope they cover their mouth when they sneeze, uh, because we are going to be concerned on some level with catching whatever they have if it's if it's if it's transmittable. Right, and it. I mean, there are some ways in which we know that seeing illness in other people incites a reaction in the disgust response. Right. Yeah, and there's been actually a lot of research on the disgust, on the disgust response. Uh, Darwin wrote about it. Uh, disgust from an evolutionary standpoint is, is all about disease avoidance. You know, like, do not eat this. Yeah. Do, 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 you know, stay away from get this. Get away. Yeah. Yeah. Something's not right here. You might hurt yourself or get sick. So when we're talking about sensuous disgust, so disgust that's tied to the senses, to sense information that we're absorbing, uh, this is uh, deeply seated in the insula, the area of the brain that uh, that malfunctions in patients with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, causing them to say, you know, wash and clean things endlessly or, or vacuum unrelentingly. Uh-huh. So the malfunction of that area gives us, you know, gives us a clue into its functionality. Uh, one interesting fact about disgusting smells, how However, is that there's a drop-off point for bad smell recognition, but not for good smells. Huh. So I think we've all encountered this, where it's that, like, say, say you're in your your office and let, and you share your office with a cat box, Ugh. and at some point the cat uh, causes quite a stink in there, and you register it first, and you're like, geez, I, I should stop what I'm doing and clean out that cat box, but you keep working. Yeah. And then after a while, you don't smell it anymore. Uh-huh. But then maybe you step outside to check the mail. Or you go to the, you know, the grocery store to pick something up or, you know, your partner comes home. And when, when you or they enter the room, you go, geez, what happened in here? Right. Did the cat do something again? No, you're just re-smelling <laughs> there originally. You forgot about it. Right. Yeah. The, the brain kind of decides, look, at this point, I assume you know that cheese, that the, the, the cheese is nasty and you're not going to eat it. Uh, or, or that yes, there is animal poop around here. It's, it's done its part. It's warned you. But the good smell will keep resonating because the good smell is probably saying, hey, there's something over here delicious to eat. Yeah. There's some fresh berries or whatnot. And it, it'll keep saying, hey, the berries are still here. Why haven't you eaten them yet? Right. This is, there's not a lot of sugar out here. You should get at these berries while you have a chance. <laughs> so the, the beautiful remains beautiful. The, the sweet smelling remains sweet smelling. But something that is disgusting, uh, even as you know, disgusting as a foul smell, we can grow accustomed to. Okay, so what's the analogy to the uncanny valley here? Well, I think the the analogy here is that if you have a, a disgust response to the to visual sense information regarding an individual's appearance, a robot's appearance, uh, a, a computer animated character's appearance, there could there could also be this disgust drop off point as you grow accustomed to it. Oh, and that's something that we have seen. We talked about a little bit in the last episode, and mm-hmm. that. Uh, some people attest that when you spend time around these robots or, uh, well, it was mainly for the robots, the, the robots that at first seem creepy, they, they stop bothering you. You right. become accustomed to them. They're not creepy anymore. I don't so much know if that's always going to be the case for creepy looking animated humans. Yeah. Um, but who knows? Now, another thing to keep in mind, too, is that the disgust response is going to depend on a number of different factors, yeah. uh, some of which are going to be tied you know, to hormonal situations. So, for instance, pregnant women are more sensitive to disgust, and this is linked to their elevated progesterone levels. Yeah. So uh, 
and of course, there are going to be other factors beyond that for every individual. Yeah. So I think that there certainly could be some amount of biological uh, instinctual response going on in the uncanny valley effect to the extent that it exists. But I think also based on what we've seen so far, that probably does not account for all of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think another thing to consider would be going to more more complex sort of cognitive psychology, such as cognitive dissonance. Now, mm-hmm. if you were to just ask me what I thought was the most likely a- answer before I got into the research, uh, I would intuitively tend to think that the best answer for what causes the uncanny valley effect primarily is our inherent discomfort with category confusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that I, I think about a lot in like the creation of monster mythology and stuff like that. We, we don't like the feeling produced by, by things that don't fit into our normal taxonomies for objects in the world and seem to violate our tax, taxonomic ordering system. And this is why I think monsters are so often hybrids of existing things, a bull's head on a man's body, things that defy our intuitive classification rules. They make us uncomfortable and cause a sense of unease leading to this uncanny feeling. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that that's what I would have intuitively said. Yeah, that makes sense. Is it wolf or is it man? Is it robot <laughs> or is it man? Right. But negative affinity resulting from this difficulty in assigning uh, the entity to a category, is it robot or human? Despite my intuitive favor for this explanation, I, I think it looks like experimental evidence for this is not strong. And in fact, in some ways, some of the studies we've looked at have somewhat invalidated this. For example, in the last episode at the end, I was talking about that uh, study by Mather and Reichling, and it did not find evidence of a strong correlation between here, – here's what you notice here – the time it took people to rate the mechano-humanoid qualities of a robot – and that robot picture's likability. So if you were chalking it up to category confusion, mm-hmm. you would probably think the robots that people took the longest time to figure out how to rate on the mechano-humanoid scale, those would be the least likable, right? Because they're the ones causing the most category confusion. Right, but I mean, you could also say that well, you're not maybe having not a vi- you're not having a visceral gut reaction to them either. You're having to right. think it out and try and, you know, analyze how you feel about it. Oh, yeah. I'd say that's exactly what we don't like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we like to be able to viscerally categorize things. Yeah, but but then the uncanny valley is often, or at least in terms of the way you're going to find it invoked by the average person, it's often discussed if it's, as if it's a visceral reaction, the sort of, oh, kill it with fire reaction that oh, people yeah. might have. Where, I, I hate that saying. Yes, I'm not a fan as well, especially when it is applied uh, outside of, uh, of, of fictional connotations. Right. But so they point out the authors here point out that they did not find this. Mm -hmm. Uh, They point out that uh, it's just not a fact that the things that took longer to look at and decide were the least likable, though. While this is not statistically important, just as a point of curiosity, the single face that took the longest to rate on the mechanical versus humanoid quality was also just about the most disliked face in their whole collection of faces. But that was just like one outlier. Overall, Mm -hmm. this did not prove present as a general effect. Other studies have also looked into this and have failed to find solid evidence for category confusion as the primary driver of the negative affinity at the bottom of the uncanny valley. So it looks like my intuitions here, I think, are wrong. But there's something that's kind of related as an idea that's been explored, and that is the idea of perceptual mismatch. So several authors have advocated the idea that this perceptual mismatch could be the primary cause of what we don't like about things that we would intuitively say fall into the uncanny valley. So one piece of research I want to mention is a sort of review by uh, uh, Kat Siri that is a review of empirical evidence on different uncanny valley hypotheses, support for perceptual mismatch as one road to the valley of eeriness. they got to give it a different name, apparently, <laughs> in Frontiers in Psychology in 2015. So in this study, the authors review present research and claim that experimental research attempting to show the uncanny valley has been inconsistent. They don't exactly say that the uncanny valley doesn't exist, but that it's not as simple as often believed to be something we've been saying for a while now. It's it's not that any manipulation of the variable of human likeness leads to uncanny valley effects. 
Uh, so in other words, that the horizontal axis on the graph is more complicated than just the question of how realistically human is it. I've seen this come up enough now that I'm pretty convinced that that, that is not necessarily the only or even the primary factor here. But they still recognize that there is some kind of effect here. So they claim that there's evidence against the category confusion basis that we were just talking about. But they claim that there has been good evidence in support of the perceptual mismatch hypothesis. And I want to read what they say. They say, quote, taken together, the present review suggested that although not any kind of human likeness manipulation leads to the uncanny valley, the uncanny valley could be caused by more perceptual specific perceptual mismatch conditions. Such conditions could originate at least from inconsistent realism levels between individual features. And the examples they give would be like artificial eyes on a human-like face or the presence of atypical features such as atypically large eyes on an otherwise human-like character. So what they're saying there is not necessarily that you can't tell whether it's a robot or a human, but that there have been multiple experiments that seem to show people are unsettled and made unhappy by things where the features on the face or the features of the figure as a whole are inconsistently realistic. Like we're more okay with a robot that's consistently realistic at a certain level at maybe say 70% mm-hmm. than something that has eyes at 90% and skin at 40%. This reminds me, uh, I, I, this is just coming off the top of my head, so I don't have the artist's name uh, here, but uh, there was a, there's an artist whose work made the rounds where they took cartoon characters and they depicted them realistically. So it's Ugh, Homer Simpson. Yes. Homer Simpson with, like, pores on his skin. You yeah. Know, like, horrible. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that comes to mind as a, kind of a possible example of this. Yeah, I, I think that's a good explanation. So I, I want to get into my main takeaways from looking at the Uncanny Valley research so far. Maybe you can let me know what you think about this. I'd say, first of all, I think the Uncanny Valley is a real thing, but it's not as simple as Maury's original hypothesis would lead you to believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, people definitely do get creeped out by lots of almost human looking things, but it's not necessarily just that the near failed human realism is is what makes them unsettling. There are other things that appear to be making them unsettling, though that the near humanness plays some kind of role. And the other big thing is that there appear to be multiple dimensions to explain the phenomenon, right? So synthetic humanoid images, whether robotic or animated, offer multiple dimensions of attraction and revulsion. I think it's possible that there are some biologically triggered effects, uh, the appearance of health or disease, the appearance Mm -hmm. of life or death. But then I think there are possibly other things triggered by psychological cognitive dissonance, probably not category confusion, um, but uh, but some good evidence for this idea of the perceptual mismatch being the cause. And then the final thing is that the uncanny valley effect is context dependent. How long have you been exposed to the image? In what setting? Is it part of a narrative or some other context in which you're being asked to suspend your disbelief or otherwise put yourself in a state of openness? Robert, what do you think about all this so far? You got any disagreement? No, I mean, I, I, I feel like my view on it closely lines up with, uh, with, with yours here. Basically, that it's just a, that there is an effect going on, but it's far, it's far more nuanced than simply, oh, these are, these are the factors that make yeah. uh, something fall into the uncanny valley. Yeah, not just how realistically human. There's, there's other stuff going on. Right. And not just a mere hybridization. Uh, I, I was instantly thinking about, um, the Borg and, uh, and, and occasionally, uh, you know, the, the sort of sexy Borgs that show up in uh, the Star Trek universe. Oh, no. Like there's, there's clearly category confusion going on there. Uh, but they're, they're not depicted as particularly uncanny. Yeah. Like was the Borg queen, was she uncanny? Uh, kind of. I don't know. I mean, I, even when I'm her... not a big fan of the way the Borg look. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but, but, Outside of the Borg, you can also think of uh, you know, various sort of hybrid human creatures depicted in fantasy and fiction that uh, that are created in such a way to be be alluring. Uh, like they, they manage to fetishize the inhuman qualities of them. Yeah, they fetishize that's true. the category confusion. Yeah, uh, yeah. It makes me think that there are certain qualities of the human appearance that, if altered, are much more significant in terms of our affect response than others. Mm-hmm. So it could be I'm, I'm just making this up. I don't know if this is true, but that like 
getting the getting the size of the eyes wrong could quite easily lead to a disgust response and and revulsion, but getting the size of the nose wrong wouldn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Or just thinking of eyes, like definitely making the eyes inappropriately large mm-hmm. leads to a creepy factor, and this is often employed. Uh, I instantly think of the the vampire movie, uh, what twenty. 30 Days of Night, is that the name of it? Oh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, where they did some sort of digital effect to make the 40, eyes. I don't remember the number. Some number of Days of TBD Night. TBD Days of Night. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't actually see it, but the trailers were uh, were certainly uh, interesting. Uh, but likewise, if you just take an individual and have them wear blackout contact lenses, yeah. like that is often, sometimes that's played up for creepiness, but a lot of times it's played up for to be alluring. You'll have uh, male or female characters that are, are otherwise dressed in some alluring fashion, but they have blacked out eyes and it's who it's kind of like supernatural, sexy, cool, as opposed to just like, oh, my God, why, why are your eyes pits of darkness? Yeah. But maybe that's just me. OK, well, I think we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will go beyond the uncanny valley. <laughs> All right, we're back. Okay, so Robert, I can recall discussions going back for years about whether we're going to make it out of the Uncanny Valley in the realm of robotics or animation. And I think from here on, I want to focus primarily on animation just to, okay. just to keep us focused. And I think there are actually two separate questions here, assuming that the Uncanny Valley is it, to some extent a coherent idea. We've already explained all the ways in which it's way, obviously way more complicated than the naive popular culture, culture understanding of it. But, uh, the two big questions. Number one, can we make realistic looking humanoid characters that aren't creepy? I think the answer here is yes. I think it's not a two dimensional graph. I think you can make things that aren't quite photorealistic, but look realistic that aren't creepy. C- current generation video games have been doing this. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I think that there are tricks to doing this. It's apparently in achieving like the right combination of realistic traits and unrealistic traits that maybe you would just land on by doing trial and error in design over time. Mm-hmm. You would never mistake these characters for photographs of real humans, but they're also not cartoony. They've got this feeling of realish, realishness. Yeah. If you know what I mean? But they've, they've, they've attained sort of a generally acceptable plateau of realistic affect, but they're not skewing into these different danger zones adjacent to photorealism where the shortcomings become creepy and off-putting and we don't like it. Then there would be another question, and that's just, can we make animated characters that are robustly indistinguishable from human? Like, can we get all the way up the other side of the the mountain, up to the, the peak of reality? And last week, if you'd asked me, my personal answer would have been no, not yet. But I think that's actually not as clear cut as we hmm. would first guess. And because you think that perhaps many of the humans we see on TV are actually digital uh, creations? Oh, I know for a fact <laughs> that that who's that guy, that Jimmy Fallon guy. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Fallon might be a computer generated uh, Jimmy creature Fallon, or an android. Yeah, that is not a person. Yeah, he has been generated by a computer that's in uh, Palo Alto, California. <laughs> it's a supercomputer. I mean, it's a really good computer, but. Yeah, well, I often feel the same way about uh, Michael Fassbender. And granted, it's com- complicated by the fact that he has he has a thing for playing androids recently. But at times, you're just like, no, he's just a little too handsome. There's something inhuman <laughs> about this this man's uh, uh, handsomeness and his charm. So I want to talk about one thing that is that has given me pause on this subject, and it's going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the last episode, Rogue One. Yes. So back to the CGI Grand Moff Tarkin. When I saw, when I first saw Rogue One, I liked a lot of things about the movie, but I did not really like the, the CGI Tarkin. The, the almost Peter Cushing was very, very good. And I really mean that. I mean, shockingly good, Mm -hmm. but still not quite real to me. Still kind of distracting because of how slightly off it was. I, I would not have mistaken it for a real person. But the other day, I was talking in the office to Holly Fry, who oh, is, is, is Holly a Star Wars fan? <laughs> she's <laughs> so she's one of the hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class, mm-hmm. one of our one of our uh, podcasts in the podcast family here. Yeah, she is hands down the most Star Wars knowledgeable person in the office, in an office full of nerds. If yeah, you- I, I should point out that Holly has 
slash had like a golden ticket to go see Rogue One anytime she wanted to at the theater. What? what are you serious? I'm serious. This is yeah, yeah, legit. Where'd that come from? I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I'm not at that level of uh, a fandom where I'm even offered such things. I I know. So if if you want to have a funny experience, go up to Holly and just like ask some really obscure random question about Star <laughs> Wars, where you think it could not be possible that there's an actual answer to this. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that stormtrooper on the left, where did he? What planet was he born on? Holly will have an answer. She'll be like, <laughs> oh, that was actually addressed in dialogue in the Greek dub of this episode of Clone Wars. <laughs> Uh, so Holly has amazing Star Wars knowledge. She is super fun to talk to about the Star Wars universe. But anyway, Holly pointed out that while a lot of people like me were saying that the CGI Tarkin was a few pixels short of escaping the valley, then again, there were plenty of people, including some older people that she knew, who couldn't tell that it wasn't a real person. Hmm. They literally they couldn't tell. Well, I'm worried about my viewing, upcoming viewing of the film, because I have I've been uh, preconditioned. To have a certain response to the to the the, the Tarkin uh, bot here. Oh, I'm sorry that we've had this discussion before you were able to see the movie for yourself. I'm well, no, curious. it'll be interesting. Yeah. Being preconditioned, will I go into it, you know, expecting an abomination and the, like, but the level of detail will overwhelm me and it won't matter, mm-hmm. or am I going to go in there and nothing is going to fool me because I'm going to be looking for the cracks? You know, I can I can put myself in a mindset. Okay, where. I think it's possible I might not have known that it was a CGI effect. If I wasn't familiar with what to look for, like if I didn't watch a lot of movies that had CGI effects in them, and if I didn't complain about CGI a lot, I'm Mm. sorry, guilty is charged. I'm guilty of that. Uh, if I wasn't aware that Peter Cushing was dead, um, if it wasn't, if I wasn't sort of prepared to see a lot of high tech CGI by virtue of the fact that I'm sitting in a theater for a Lucasfilm movie, all those things, if you took away all the context and my pre knowledge, I very might possibly have fallen for it. I think I, I might have just, it might have just gone past me. If I was absorbed in the story, I might have thought, yeah, this kind of strange looking dude, but it's just a dude. And I think it gets better or worse, depending on your perspective. So I have an October 8th, 2016 news piece from BBC Asia here about a character called Saya, a computer animated character created by the Japanese husband and wife graphic design team, Teriyuki and Yuka Ishikawa. And I mentioned this one in particular because before we did this episode, I went and I looked up what are considered a lot of the most realistic CGI character creations, the most impressive animations. This one came up, and I think this was the most impressive to me. It's probably the most photoreal, computer-generated human I've come across so far. So Saya is supposed to be a 17-year-old Japanese student, and the creators have been working on her design for a couple of years now. And as versions of Saya have been posted on the Internet, people have widely reacted with comments like, I can't believe that's not a real person. And I kind of have to agree. I'm looking at these these pictures of her. There are a couple of different generations of her design up. And the most recent one just looks like a photograph of a person. Yeah, I I can't tell that that is not a person. I, I have no recourse to critical faculties in my mind that would say, no, here's where you can tell that that's not a real person. Hmm. Now, at the same time, I do have to come back to a comment I made earlier that that this is also a, it's a it's a, it's a pretty face. It's mm-hmm. a very standard face like this. is yeah. This is leading lady material, mm-hmm. whereas uh, I think it gets more problematic when you look at character actor type figures such oh, as Peter Cushing. Exactly. Because they have such a distinctive face. Yes. And Peter Cushing. So this is a, one thing that helps, I think, is that it's a young character mm-hmm. who has very smooth features. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Cushing has a lot of cracks and crags, right. and a lot of wrinkles. And I think that that may actually be simply having more texture on your face could make it much more difficult to make a photoreal copy of you. That, yeah. That's entirely possible. But uh, to get back to Saya, so in October of last year, the artists debuted the first animated clip of Saya, which they created using motion capture technology, and they debuted it at a Japanese consumer electronics show. I, I watched this footage, and 
I think Maury's distinction about having different standards for motion and still images does apply because while with the still image, I can't tell that's not a real person with the short animated clip. I can, I can tell it's not a real person, but mm-hmm. it's still very, very impressive. Uh, not as absolutely photo real as the still images, but I don't know. I, I wonder to what extent this gap is just, um, that motion animation is a bigger technical project. It takes more investment and money and all that. Um, and to what extent the gap is within the viewer's mind, essentially to what extent it's caused by the fact that the climb out of the uncanny valley is steeper if you're moving. Hmm. Now, I know we're not talking about robots here, but this, of course, this brings up the thought that as we're, as we attempt to conquer this in the realm of humanoid robotics. Yeah. You're going to inevitably have situations where, oh, well, it looks just like a person if it's walking down the street. Uh-huh. But if it climbs stairs, yeah, um, there you it's, go. It's not necessarily going to Ed 209 <laughs> there with its legs in the air. But maybe there would be something telling like, oh, well, it looks like a, a human most of the time. But there are going to be certain movements, certain environmental reactions th- that are just not going to hold up to scrutiny. Right. So I don't know. Looking at these things, looking at Tarkin in Rogue One, looking at Saya. I think it's clear that we're getting closer and closer to really bridging the gap on indistinguishable photoreal humanity in computer animation. Mm-hmm. Whether you'd call that an uncanny valley or not, obviously this is a related but maybe different issue. What we're definitely drawing near is that peak of reality where there are synthetically generated images of humans that you can't tell from the real thing. Right. And since things in the Uncanny Valley are creepy, I think we usually just assume that overcoming it is a good thing, right? Like design's getting better. Uh, isn't it kind of cool that we can generate these photoreal images without, ha- without actually having to photograph someone? But I'm not so sure that's a good thing. Huh. I think we should maybe think about the implications of this. Like what would happen in a world where human simulations, especially computer animation, can reliably climb up that second peak? So we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will go beyond the Uncanny Valley. All right, we're back. You know, I'm glad you brought up this idea of, you know, is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Uh, it does remind me of a fabulous book that came out a few years back. I think I just referenced it in our Sexbots episode uh, titled The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacalupi. Um, it's a, a near-future science fiction tale, just really a wonderful novel, very fun. Uh-huh. But the, the Wind-Up Girl in question is a uh, essentially a sex bot character okay. that goes, you know, that, that ends up rebelling, and you know, have sort of a, a typical narrative with her. But they call her Wind Up Girl because she's 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 very convincing as a humanoid, except that her skin pores are too small, and she has an intentionally herky jerky movement to uh, uh, to uh, as she walks around that they did so that she could not be mistaken as a person. Oh, so that, uh, that so that apparently like all the I think they were called the new people at some in, in some cases so that the new people could not be mistaken for the old people. Whoa. It reminds me of how they had to add artificial sounds to electric cars for safety purposes oh, because yeah. the cars are too quiet. They can really sneak up on you from behind. So they had to make them rumble a little bit. More. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's an app comparison. So here's a question for you, okay. Robert. What is the gold standard of evidence that somebody did something? Imagine you're on a jury. Mm-hmm. I'm the defendant. I've been accused of offering a cash bribe to a police officer if she'll let me borrow her gun for five minutes. She says I did it. I plead not guilty. What What's the best evidence to convince you that I really did that? Well, it's not human memory because as we've touched on many times before, human memory is fallible and, uh, and it's a legitimate problem when it comes to, to eyewitness testimony. Yeah. But when the eyewitness is a video camera, a digital camera, that has a lot of photographic evidence as well to, to certain degrees. Like this has been held up as the gold standard. Right. I mean, assuming the footage is clear enough that the mm-hmm. individual's face is visible, all of that, uh, like, even in our science fiction, right? Uh, we have so many examples of, uh, uh, like in Star Trek again, there would be scenes where, where Picard would command that we zoom in and enhance. Yeah. And it was never questioned that there were any problems with the enhancing of the image. Right. It was just something that was done. It's like, oh yeah, the image is enhanced and now we see exactly who the killer is. Uh huh. 
so we should look at this this booming new research field. I shouldn't say booming. I just mean there are some papers on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> called facial reenactment. So this employs some of the same techniques that you would see used in uh, in studios if they, if people are doing motion capture for CGI characters in movies and video games. You have an actor or performer who puts on special gear in a special environment surrounded by lights and cameras, and the performer acts out motions. These motions are captured from multiple angles and different lighting conditions, and then they're translated by a computer into the motions of a CGI character. You could make a CGI me that was doing all the same things I did with my body. Mm -hmm. But what if instead of a CGI character, you used captured motion to manipulate existing video or images of a real person, not a CGI character? This technology is already in development today. And one example is the research being done under the heading, as I said, of facial reenactment. There are a couple of papers along with accompanying video demonstrations by a group of researchers based out of Stanford, out of the Max Planck Institute for Informatics and the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg. And in their own words, quote, we present a method for the real time transfer of facial expressions from an actor in a source video to an actor in a target video, thus enabling the ad hoc control of the facial expressions of the target actor. So if you haven't seen video of this, you should look it up. Try facial reenactment video. If you have sufficient sample video of your target, you can use a regular camera to project new facial expressions, including mouth movements, which form the shapes of words onto your, your target in your video. So I could take video of Robert talking if, if I had all this technology. If I could take video of Robert talking and then I could film myself saying Halloween five is the best entry <laughs> in the Halloween franchise and then map that onto Robert's face to make his lips say those words to make his face move along with my face as it's being recorded. And in the demonstrations of this, it looks nearly photoreal. They do it with with public figures, making them move their faces around, move their lips to say things. In some cases, I think the average observer already would not be able to tell the difference in this video. And in fact, a similar thing appears to be happening with voice. Uh, This thing you might have read about last year, this thing, Adobe Voco, where they came out with this announcement that Adobe is working on software where you can take a 20 minute sample of your audio to learn from. If you've got a recording of somebody talking for 20 minutes, I can take it, make a recording of you saying things you never said in your own voice. I want to I seem to remember that uh, before his death, Roger Ebert uh was involved with the project with some of uh, this technology. The oh, yeah. idea being that, of course, he had lost his his ability to talk right. uh, uh, due to illness. But there was so much Roger Ebert um, audio out yeah. there from all of his years as a as a as a film critic and a, and a TV personality that they had this they they had everything they needed to enable him to say anything new. Yeah, and that that explores the totally non-nefarious aspect of this. I mean, I I don't think people who are pursuing these lines of research are just trying to create a world where we can fake video evidence of things. But uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for somebody who'd lost their capacity for speech? If they had recordings of their voice to be able to create a text-to-speech voice box that could speak with their own voice, Mm -hmm. uh, that's amazing. That's kind of beautiful. But there are these other... (laughs) Ways of looking at this. And, and the authors also, they, they point out that, you know, they, they, in their own defense, they're like, look, we're not trying to create a world where people can fake video. We also try to show how you can detect altered video. Okay. So that's another thing they're trying to explore and make public because, you know, they're not the only people pursuing this research. Obviously, people all over the place are doing stuff like this and stuff like this has been in the use, has been in use in the movie industry for years. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think that what you would need to go for is the equivalent of a watermark. I don't know exactly yeah. what that watermark would be and what form it would take, but it does make me think, well, we're going to reach a point where any kind of footage has to have the watermark of authenticity. Otherwise, doubt will be cast upon it. Yeah, I, I, I'm concerned about the idea of living in a world where you can make very convincing looking fake video evidence of things. Yeah. 
And not just because of the specific example of somebody can make a video of me or somebody I like, you know, saying or doing something that they didn't do. Mm-hmm. It's not just the specifics. It's the general degrading of our trust in the ability to look at things and know that they're true. Yeah, I mean, we look at, uh, at the current news cycle, and there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the reliability of information, of so-called uh, fake news. Yeah. Uh, the idea that you, re- you reach this point where nobody knows what to trust anymore, yeah. so you end up just trusting nothing. And, and you already know this because you don't trust any weird-looking picture of somebody you see, right? Because mm-hmm. you know what can be done with Photoshop. Right. We're already there with still images. Yeah, Photoshop is... is it's basically in many contexts become a verb yeah. uh, f- for uh, for the, the distortion of truth. But what what if we had Photoshop to undermine moving video evidence to the mm. same extent that Photoshop has undermined still images? Huh. I mean, this is what a lot of these viral fake news stories are based on is a photoshopped image. If you go to uh, Snopes or something and you look at what a lot a lot of what they're debunking is, it's just an image that claims to be real of somebody doing something and they have to track down where it came from. Hmm. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine what that would slash will be like when we reach that point to where there's. (laughs) <laughs> where, where video, even digital footage, is no longer the gold standard it was. I mean, I think it's a vac- actually a very important project to maintain a version of the Uncanny Valley <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to help people find a way to all to separate real video evidence from fake video evidence of things to understand that there are things you can look for that separate real moving imagery from falsified or synthetic moving imagery. Now, one way you can approach this is to do what the authors of this research I was talking about do, is they say, look, here are things that uh, are, are signs that video has been manipulated. And that's one thing. And maybe there will be a lot of experts on this in the future. Uh-huh. Like, it could be a whole field of people who are just there to have expertise in authenticating purportedly real video of you doing things or not. Uh, then, on the other hand, we we could hope that there is, in fact an adaptive response in our discernment in general. And this is where I want to go to the concept of an uh, of the uncanny wall. So a 2011 paper in the International Journal of Arts and Technology authored by Tenwell, Grimshaw, and Williams offers this interesting counter-hypothesis to the uncanny valley. And I want to emphasize again, we've sort of shifted back and forth between the uncanny valley itself in terms of what causes negative affinity and then over slightly just to the issue of nearing photorealism or not. So keep in mind the, the, the difference in those subjects. But they they propose this idea of the uncanny wall. To put it succinctly, they propose that quote, increasing technological sophistication in the creation of realism for human-like virtual characters is matched by increasing technological discernment on the part of the viewer. In other words, as humanoid characters become more real, our standards for what looks realistic go up. Hmm. And I do think there, I just anecdotally, personally, that I think there's some support for this. And I kind of hope this is true so we can avoid this uh, world where all video evidence is in question. Because I immediately think right now I've got, I've got antennae for photoshopped images, unlike I had 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think stuff that would look obviously photoshopped to me today would have fooled me 10 years ago. I think I've simply adapted. And another thing is it makes me flash back to the early days of CGI in movies and like the 32-bit video game era. <laughs> or think about like PlayStation 1 games. Yeah. Now, back then, I remember looking at games for the original PlayStation and thinking, wow, that looks so real. Oh, yeah. And, and you try and play them now and it's painful. Yeah, you can't. It, blocky polygons. People's faces have all these sharp corners. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, there was some kind of geometrical nightmare world everything was taking place in where there's just lots of sharp angles. Uh, but at the time, it looked so real to me. And another fun trick is go back and read movie reviews for movies with bad CGI from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Professional movie reviewers at the time were often praising the effects 
one example is like the Mortal Kombat movie, the original Mortal Kombat movie. Oh, yeah. Remember this? You can find reviews at the time where people are like, well, the story's thin and immature, but dazzling special effects. <laughs> now even mentioning those special effects conjures a kind of delirious hilarity. You just start laughing when you think about the CGI in Mortal Kombat. We, uh, but that being said, the Goro puppet was above reproach. Oh, that okay. just looked really good. <laughs> it did have kind of nasty beady eyes. Though. <laughs> kind of crypt Keeper-esque. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like a very, bl- it was like a bloated, buffed-up Crypt Keeper. Yeah, the buff Crypt Keeper. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's so ugly, it provokes uncontrollable laughter. But at the time, people were like, dazzling. It looks amazing. <laughs> uh, so it makes me think that I, I hope that there is something to this this idea that these authors have that... As things continue to chase photorealism, as synthetic imagery of humans gets closer and closer to the real thing, we just get more and more attuned to the minute problems with them them, and never really get fully fooled. Hmm. Well, I have two thoughts here. One on the the whole watermark thing. Maybe it would be some sort of a a Bitcoin-type authentication system that would be in place. Yeah. Yeah. the the other is maybe you have to go beyond the real. Maybe, say, for a head of state to appear in a video and it be authentic, they have to appear as an as a computer generated avatar so advanced that it is that it is beyond the ability of any like non state production company to <laughs> create like something I, I'm, I'm so, something that. At this point, in what would be their past, I cannot even conceive of. Like a, I don't know, like a five-dimensional unfolding CGI uh, god being. Uh-huh. Because how okay. who's going to fake that? You can fake a person, but good luck faking the, the, the fifth-dimensional uh, um, avatar of Vishnu. Okay. Like like the algorithms for faking uh, a, a person with a lot of photo and, and audio uh visual cues to sample from Mm -hmm. if you've got a lot of footage out there you could simulate that person but you couldn't simulate this brand new creation that is it requires you know supercomputers to generate and yeah and it was probably built from the bottom up with completely alien physiology and movements just a thought that's kind of a crazy idea but i like it yeah well that's what i'm here for the crazy ideas (sighs) i don't know have you got anything else robert any anything else you can think of to save us from this future of of, uh synthetic human imagery oh you you know i could sit around here all day and talk about cgi monsters and uh and and uncanny valley and films and video games and whatnot but uh you know we'll have to We'll have to save that for another time. Maybe save some of it for Trailer Talk, uh, which will, if you're listening to this on a Thursday, hopefully you can tune in tomorrow around 11 a.m. on our Facebook page. Uh, and like our Facebook page while you're at it. Follow us there. But uh, tune into a little uh, discussion of trailers that are associated with the Uncanny Valley. Oh, yeah. And in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find uh, all of our blog posts, our podcasts, our videos, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as that Facebook page or the Twitter page, the Instagram account, you name it. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.